Hello and welcome to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And I'm Caelan Hogan. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 22nd of October. For the first time, the winner announcement will take place as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Celebrating 25 years this year, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English, worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. On today's episode, we'll be discussing Milkman by Anna Burns, published by Faber and Faber. Uh, So Milkman is uh, Anna Burns' fourth novel, and it won the Man Booker Prize in 2018. Her previous novel, Little Constructions, is just out in the US uh, this year, um, republished. And Milkman is just an extraordinary book about... uh, sort of violence and community and a young woman who is being stalked um, by this paramilitary who's known as the milkman and the style of the book I mean it is there are no names um, you know even people that they're talking about is are called somebody mcsomebody and (laughs) uh, we never know the name of the narrator Uh, her we have maybe boyfriend who's a man young man she's in a relationship with and it just immerses us in the consciousness of the narrator as she navigates what is you know, likely uh, Belfast during the Troubles, but the city or town is never named. And so it becomes really a universal story about the experience of conflict, the, but also the experience of various forms of violence uh, within relationships, the power dynamics within families, uh, and also just the power of rumor and language. Uh, so, you know, she becomes sort of almost victim to this rumor going around that she's having an affair with Milkman when the reality is, is that he is stalking her. Um, but there's also this reality of state violence and state surveillance. So you hear the sort of the clicking of cameras when she goes around because there's this rumor that she's with the Milkman. And so these, I think it was really interesting to read a, and see the way that those various forms of violence are exposed in the book. Uh, you know, both the, the very sort of graphic violence of conflict. There's a, a scene in the book where she talks about the killing of cats by, you know, local youths, but also uh, the time when state forces went out and killed every dog in the neighborhood. Uh, and then, you know, these forms of violence that people won't believe or see as violence. Um, so it's, you know, I think a lot of people have talked about this book as being a new insight into the troubles itself. Mm-hmm. And it, it very much is. I think it it looks at the impact um, on women and the experiences of women. Uh, it talks about, you know, sex and uh, conservative views about sex and, and the sort of existing in a community that because of the nature of conflict is is sort of embattled. And 
uh, the limits um, that puts on individuals uh, and this experience also of being beyond the pale, a beyond the pale person. Mm-hmm. So being seen as an outcast and the sort of dangers, but also liberation of that as an individual uh, within a conflict. Yeah, and there's an immediately refreshing, absorbing, just fascinating voice here as well, um, and which kind of immediately transcends the, the, the cliches of the, the IRA wife or the martyred woman um, and gives a, the character an agency and an individuality that is really, really rare and, and again, just so refreshing from the outset. So I'll read a short extract. Nobody, especially a teenager, likes to discover they've been earmarked some freak weirdo person. Me, in the same boat as our poisoner, Tablets Girl. This was shocking and not at all fair. It seemed, too, that once again, everybody, bar, maybe boyfriend, and, though I hated to admit it, milkman, was homing in on my harmless reading while walking. These past months, ever since the beginning of Milkman, I was getting an education on just how much I was impacting people without any awareness I'd been visible to people. It's creepy, perverse, obstinately determined, went on longest friend. It's not as if, friend, she said, this were a case of a person glancing at some newspaper as they're walking along to get the latest headlines or something. It's the way you do it. Reading books, whole books, taking notes, checking footnotes, underlining passages as if you're at some desk or something, in a little private study or something, the curtains closed, your lamp on, a cup of tea beside you, essays being penned, your discourses, your elucubrations, It's disturbing. It's deviant. It's optical illusional, not public spirited, not self-preservation, calls attention to itself. And why, with enemies at the door, with the community under siege, with us all having to pull together, would anyone want to call attention to themselves here? Hold on a minute, I said. Are you saying it's okay for him to go around with Semtex, but not okay for me to read Jane Eyre in public? I didn't say not in public. Just don't do it while you're walking about. They don't like it, she added, meaning the community then, resuming that looking ahead of hers, she said she was not prepared to get into amphibologies, into equivocations, into the old over-the-water double talk, but if I cared to look at it in its proper surroundings, then Semtex taking precedence as something normal over reading while walking, which nobody but you thinks is normal, could certainly be construed as the comprehensible interpretation here. And that, you know, that moment where she talks about, you know, Semtech, going around with Semtech being normal, but walking around, you know, the narrative walks around with a book. And that is sort of her her shield almost, her protection. She feels that if she can sort of block everything out by walking around while reading, then people will leave her alone. And yet it becomes the focus of the whole community. It's something that makes her more vulnerable and, and sort of a target. Um, and I think that this book is very much as well about sort of totalitarianism and everyday to- totalitarianism um, and the way that I think women are often the target of that. If you can control women, mm-hmm. um, the power structure sort of endures. So, uh, you know, the narrator really becomes a target of all these forces. Yeah, and I can't wait to hear more from Anna Burns on the novel itself. You had a chance to talk to her, Caelan, so let's have a listen in now. Hi, Anna. Hello there, Caelan. 
Good to speak with you. Wonderful to be speaking to you and to get the opportunity to discuss Milkman. It's an extraordinary book that immerses us in the consciousness of a young woman navigating a conflict, navigating a polarized society where violence is constant, navigating her own family, her sexuality and relationships while dealing with the psychological impact of living under surveillance and rumor and threat. It confronts us with some stark realities about power and violence, but the book equally made me laugh many times, capturing something deeply human, and it gives this remarkable insight into the dynamic and power of human relationships. To start off, I just wanted to ask simply what first sparked the idea for Milkman, or how did the narrator and the people central to the book first start to speak to you? What was it like trying to create space for and capture this story? Well, initially, I had the idea to take a few hundred words of notes from another book I was writing at the time to start off or to start me off into a short story to send you a magazine. These notes were about reading while walking, which I used to do a lot when I was younger. When I started to write these notes up to make a fiction of this, a character appeared, a teenage girl. She was reading Ivanhoe and walking down an interface road in Belfast or what I took to be Belfast. I went with her and I listened to what she was saying to herself in her head. She wasn't concentrating on her book, but she was more preoccupied with something to do with her elder sister who had just told her off recently for something. And that's what started off Milkman. As for creating space, I can only write what comes, what my characters reveal to me. That's a vital driver of my work. At the start, it is a messy process. But as a book develops, the themes and the plots appear as well, often in ways I could never have anticipated. My job is to hold the whole emerging book in my mind, with its mix of polished bits and sketched in areas, and the gaps, and to stay ready and alert for to get more. If I try too hard to direct what happens, the book stops or throws my passages out. So I've learned through experience just not to do that. One of the great things about this award is that it brings together books from a number of years, and in this case, a tumultuous few years that has seen, that have seen increasing polarization and unrest. Your book captures a very specific time and place, but also is universal speaking to the experiences of anyone, as you have said, who is facing these forms of violence in oppressive and polarised environments. That's a long way of leading up to asking, I guess, how the last few years have been since Milkman came out, uh, with it resonating with so many people worldwide. And how has it been um, also as a writer living in England in the midst of the changes both Brexit and the pandemic have brought? Has it changed the way at all that, that you write or that you approach the craft? Has it changed what you've been reading um, or what you're hoping to write about going forward? I don't write to deliver any particular point as I can only write what comes to me. Milkman's set within a traumatised community where people are just trying to live in an ordinary way, but amidst a time of great violence and fear and hatred. I think every reader has the right to make their own interpretation of whatever they read, as I do myself, so I can't intentionally offer a universal message. 
I'm absolutely delighted, though, that my book has found readers all over the world who seem to connect with it and who find it relevant to them. Winning such a prestigious prize as the Man Booker, which it was called in 2018, was and ever will be a wonderful, joyful experience. It's a great gift to me to know that my book is now out there doing its thing in more countries than I've been in myself. And as you've mentioned Brexit and the pandemic and asked about its effects on me, I'll say I can't track a straight line from current events to any changes in my writing or my reading. I like to read widely and it's exciting for me to approach a book with a what have we here quality. At present I'm reading old classics as well as astronomy books and books on ghosts and the supernatural and a Quaker book about peace. You've spoken before about growing up in Belfast in a big family, one of seven, in the city's kitchen houses, as you described them, uh, living for a time as well with your unmarried aunt. How did that shape your experience, the difference between that intense family atmosphere in a close space and with a woman living on her own at a time when that was maybe less common? Um, And how did it maybe influence uh, your writing of Milkman? Certainly it broadened my experience to have the intensity of living both in a big family as well as sharing the relative quiet space that I had living across the road with my aunt. I like that mix and looking at it now, I can see and appreciate the benefits of both. My aunt remaining unmarried was unusual in my district. When I was growing up, both women and men were expected to marry and to marry early, though there was more outward pressure placed on females. In Milkman, all the characters are equally expected to conform in that sense. So yes, there is a link between the expectation of the actual district I grew up in and that of the narrator of Milkman. One of the interesting things about this award is that libraries choose the books. And in Milkman, the narrator speaks about uh, the overused library cards, or you indeed have spoken about uh, a high currency on library cards growing up. And books have been sort of an escape and a support for the narrator. You opened up uh, a very important conversation about social supports after the Booker win, speaking about the support of food banks that got you through while writing the book. Libraries are a public support and public space that I feel are underappreciated. And I was wondering if there were any libraries that have been important to you as a, a reader and a writer. I've always loved libraries. They're magical places. Every week as a child, I used to look forward to Saturday mornings for then I go downtown to the Central Library with my aunt or to the old Park Library in North Belfast. And we both stock up on our choices. Libraries were real full on social scenes. You'd meet everybody you knew there. I'd meet my siblings down there. They were a hub of activity. Apart from the Central Library in Belfast and the old Park Library, um, I have Good memories of the Octagon Library at Queen Mary College in London, which I think might not be there anymore. And then there was the Lennon Hall Library in downtown Belfast, which I know is still there. And I also really like the Archway Library in Islington in London. I wanted to speak a little bit about uh, totalitarianism, which is central to Milkman, the exercise of power 
uh, you describe as puritanical or hyper-gossipy, the way the state can decide a whole community is an enemy, that everyone in a community is a terrorist. Uh, we tend to think of totalitarianism as an endpoint, the absolute extreme, but I think through Milkman you've shown the everyday reality of totalitarianism, also of violence, of forms of violence that we don't acknowledge or that we normalise. There's that vivid sequence in the book that goes from the killing of cats by local young people to the state forces executing the neighbourhood dogs, then the encounter with Milkman in the 10-minute place, the site of a World War II bomb explosion. It's the stalking that doesn't involve touch, even the clicking surveillance of the state that is the violence, the violation in that moment. Yet it's violence that many of the men, many of the people in the book don't see as such. It's everyday violence, harassment that is universal, that most women have experienced in some way at some stage. And the way the narrator tries to make herself invisible, stay under the radar is, is so familiar, yet I think is, is finally something that women are speaking out about and that is you know starting to be acknowledged. Did this novel change or expand your understanding of what violence is or how it should be understood? And why was this important to explore for you? Um, I also think totalitarianism is often deeply connected with violence against or the control of women. And I wanted to hear more uh, of your thoughts on that. Although I didn't plan this out in advance, I think you're right that my book examines power and control and pressurised times from a whole range of different angles. My narrator is continually trying to understand and to explain what happened to her as an 18-year-old and she keeps looping back to the same events from slightly different angles to try to get a handle on what was really happening in her society and in her community, her family and inside herself. The violence of the times but also the potential for violence was a big part of what was going on. For myself, though, I don't start writing from any preconceived theme of violence. There's a passage in the book where the narrator talks about shame and the difficulty in articulating what shame is and also realising how it underlies much of the violence that is going on around her. She says, I didn't know shame. I mean as a word because as a word it hadn't yet entered the communal vocabulary Certainly I knew the feeling of shame and I knew everybody around me knew that feeling as well. And then later she says, given it was such a complex, involved, very advanced feeling, most people here did all kinds of permutations in order not to have it. Killing people, doing verbal damage to people, doing mental damage to people, and not least, also not infrequently, doing those things to oneself. Um, I think... Hearing the sort of the internal dialogue about shame really exposes the way it's something sort of imposed on us so often. And it, shame is something that really underlies, I think, a lot of our history in Ireland. Uh, it's something that we've started to sort of break, to speak out about. And I was interested in how sort of you began to explore or to articulate um, the impact of shame on 
you know, all the things that have happened in this country in terms of conflict and institutionalization and how it has really sort of dominated the experiences of, of women in this country as well and of men. I don't start from an idea of I'll explore such and such a topic now, you know, in this chapter, in this book, via this character or this scene. I never approach fiction from that perspective. Instead, I wait for the story of my characters, their story. What is it they want to reveal about themselves and about the people who surround them in their world? I bring myself to the particulars of them rather than what is the collective impact, for example, of shame on a larger group, a community, a nation, even if the narrative ends up going on to that. When my narrator initially mentions her feeling of shame in the section you're highlighting, when it's brought to her attention, it's because she's feeling bad about having slighted her mother and her mother's pulled her up on it. So that's the particular of that instance. From there, she then starts pondering this feeling of shame and of its power to cripple a person and even a community to the point where no one wants to admit it exists. For myself, I think shame starts with the individual and then it moves out into society if it's not owned. I think too that there is a sense of shame that is imposed from without, for example, individuals or groups who don't want to face their own feeling of shame and so unjustly put it out onto others. But I also think there is a righteous shame a person can feel, as in this instance with my narrator, when she realises she has transgressed her own moral code. Actually, I think shame is a massive topic and I'm I'm not confident I could cover it all, never mind in this answer. I feel like we can't escape uh, speaking about Brexit and uh, you're living in England at the moment and at a time when Northern Ireland is constantly being spoken about and, and discussed. Um, and I think it's interesting in Milkman the way uh, language, um, the power of rumour, the pa- power of language uh, to sort of affect reality and shape reality or twist reality is explored, um, you know, when rumours become truth and become history. Uh, and what has been your experience of sort of watching how this narrative has unfolded about Northern Ireland, about, you know, the Troubles and, and the legacy of the Troubles um, recently and the sort of the power of language in that to make real or unreal um, what has happened in the past. Although I wrote Milkman long before Brexit, it did feel timely in its publication in terms of issues of borders, walls and the anger, fear and hatred of the other, which is going on today. I don't think this ever leads to good outcomes In my book, Gossip and Rumour characterise the narrator's community and dictate to a large extent how that community functions. I would think that turning to rumour is one of their ways to attempt to feel in control whilst living in a society that is out of control really. Although my book was set way back in the 70s, it's evident such is going on today and also it's not peculiar to Ireland but actually it's what individuals and groups do when they feel under threat. Your novel, Little Constructions, first published in 2007, came out in the US earlier this year and explores 
a family grappling with experiences of abuse and violence also. And you write, you know, very powerfully about those difficult human relationships and the harms that we can do each other. But I'm also reminded of the moment in Milkman that discusses the, the sunset where the French teacher is asking students to see the sky as other colours than blue and the class sort of is adamant that the sky can only be blue and she brings them to look at the sunset and and to see other colours are possible. And this is after maybe Boyfriend has brought the narrator to see a sunset for the first time. And I feel like it shows the capacity for radical change in perspective and how that is often through human relationships that we come to see the world differently. We also see the hope in the change that comes over the mother at the end, which I won't spoil. But uh, do you have, you know, at this time when, you know, there's, there's a lot of concerns about how we're failing to connect with each other and how so many people are failing to see eye to eye or to even be able to have a conversation, do you think there still is that capacity for change in perspective and, uh, you know, for human relationships to bring about sort of a positive change? Yes, I do. Otherwise, all you've got is the old story forever. In my writing, there are examples of characters changing their minds positively, even if fearfully. And they do this usually in little ways, despite these tiny attempts being viewed as revolutionary within the context of their stultifying, violent surroundings. But you know, even little changes can massively alter a person's trajectory. In one sense, I do write stories of how societies and individuals react and fragment under intense pressure and of how lives are much curtailed by fear and paranoia. But there are also stories of the adjustments that individuals make in order to express who they really are. Many of them do manage to do this and to survive and astonishingly survive and even thrive whilst holding on to some sense of humanity and of connection. There is a potential for change and for a celebration of life to exist and to burst through even the grimmest of circumstances. Thank you so much. Um, it was really brilliant to have the opportunity to talk to you about um, the book and uh, wish you all the best. Good luck with the festival and stay safe and well, OK? All best. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online awards ceremony broadcast from the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin on the 22nd of October at 11am Irish Standard Time. You can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.